going to move into the time of the word. If you are visiting us, uh, again, we just want to welcome you. If you're a part of our YouTube stream, feel free to join us in our Zoom where things are a little bit more relational and we want to really um, have a community, not just uh, some type of product that you consume via YouTube. But we understand all of us, we are in different comfort levels. So if you're just checking us out, do whatever is comfortable for you, but know that the door is wide open for you to join us in our Zoom worship. Uh, also, you'll notice that in our sermons, if you have any questions, prayer requests, prayers that you want uttered, uh, please feel free to text those. All of those things are anonymous, and we look at that as part of the way that we worship our God. Um, and lastly, I do want to just remind everybody to take notes, um, not because the sermon is just so profoundly insightful, but really as our brother Roger prayed and as we've been praying every week, we look at sermons as a way that God speaks to his people. It's really the spirit that is placing certain things on our hearts. And we want to jot those things down. Those things are literally noteworthy. Uh, so please feel free to jot down any notes that you may think that the spirit may be speaking to you. Um, so yeah, we are continuing on in our Proverbs series. And um, I'm sure some of us have heard, you know, Jesus talks a lot about money. He talks a lot about wealth, and he really does. I mean, if you were to actually calculate all the things that he talks about, wealth and money is one of the top of the things on his list. And when we look at Proverbs, which is a sermon series that we're on, Proverbs also talks a great deal about money and wealth. Um, if you know anything about uh, New Hope, Uptown, even for myself, I haven't really preached much on money. I think maybe the last time may have been like two years ago. So I feel like I'm actually being unfaithful not talking about money. So we are going to talk about money, but it's not the way that you may expect. Uh, what I really want us to look at when we look at money is we are actually heirs. And when I say the word heir, I know it's not the most common word, but heir is like a child who is going to inherit something very, very, I don't know, lavish, luxurious, something very enormous. And we are all heirs in Christ because we are in Christ. Those who submit and believe in the gospel of Jesus, just like our brother Roger prayed, it's, it's very simple. Just believing in who Jesus is and what, he's, what he has done for us. By doing that, you are a co-heir of the living son of God. And we, because we are the heirs of God, we inherit an enormous wealth that we're going to unpack and talk a little bit about today. But... On the other hand, we are also heirs of suffering. And I know it sounds like both of those are two paradoxical things, but if you really think about it, it makes sense. And I'm going to unpack this a little bit more at the end. But if we are heirs with Christ, if we are becoming more like Christ, then yes, we should be more loving, we should be more patient, and we should also experience more wealth. And I'm going to talk about spiritual wealth. But on the other hand, if we are really becoming more like Christ, Another thing that Jesus was known for was not merely being nice to people and being loving and being the son of God who is, you know, the king of all the riches and the wealth of this world. But another aspect of Christ is that he suffered. He suffered greatly. And all of us, we should be so thankful to be Christians. Again, just like our brother Roger prayed, it's a grace that we could have never earned. But part of us being Christians is we become like our master Jesus. And one of the things that he was known for was suffering. And when we think about wealth, I know it sounds like it's a little counterintuitive, but suffering actually go hand in hand with wealth. 
Um, you know, when I pray for our uptown community, as I've been reflecting upon scripture, as I've been thinking about, you know, the, the various people that I've counseled, small group conversations, different questions and prayer requests that have come up after service. One of the things that I really sense is that we're not very good at suffering. And I, I, I do think that we have, uh, I know I keep saying this, but the way we sin typically is not these egregious actions like murder and lying. But I do think that the way we sin is we distort and we suppress and we reject God's character and his involvement in our lives. And, and an example of that is when we think of being an heir of wealth, we think, okay, sign me up for that. Yeah, that makes sense. If I am a child of God, then my life should be filled with success and wealth. And when we realize that life doesn't turn out that way, then all of a sudden we think, maybe that's not very true. Maybe that biblical truth I've misinterpreted. Maybe I'm not really an heir of wealth. And basically we're questioning a truth claim that God has given us. We're questioning his word. And then we bounce to the other extreme. The reason why we feel like we're not heirs of wealth is because we experience suffering in life. We experience setbacks. We experience rejection. Maybe we got laid off. Maybe we got fired. Maybe we didn't get the promotion. And therefore we feel like, okay, I'm definitely not a child of wealth. Whatever scripture says about that, I don't think that's true. And we're distorting scripture. We're distorting God's character. And when we experience suffering, we feel like, oh, woe is me. There's no way God can redeem this. God has left me. He has abandoned me. There's no way I'm a child of wealth. I'm no longer an heir of wealth. And basically, because of the circumstances of life, whether it's suffering or whether it is wealth, we end up doubting some of the promises that God has clearly laid out to us in his word. Um, and we're going to see how wealth and suffering are not mutually opposed things. They go hand in hand. So we're going to take a look at wealth um, from Proverbs 22, and then we're going to take a look at wealth from all of Scripture. Now, when we look at Proverbs 22, uh, when we look especially at the first 16 verses, a lot of those verses have to do with wealth. We're not going to read through every single one of them. I'm just going to summarize. I'm going to read through two of these verses, and they're pretty, you know, they're not that difficult to understand. The first one that I'm just going to uh, lay out is the rich and the poor, they meet together rich and the poor, there's harmony between them. The Lord is the maker of them all. So basically what this proverb is saying is historically, when we think about the rich and the poor, we think of much animosity and hostility. We think of, I don't know, Karl Marx and his theory of, of uh, society and how the poor is being oppressed by the rich and the poor needs to rebel against the rich. And, in lot, and if you look at the course of human history, that is somewhat an accurate way of describing the way society functions. Rich and the poor, they do not function harmoniously. There's a lot of animosity towards the rich and the poor. But what this proverb is saying is the rich and the poor, they can meet together despite the animosity. There can be harmony. Why? Because there's something that unites all of them. The Lord is the maker of them all. And basically what this proverb is saying is when we think about the rich, when we think about the poor, no matter how, where you are in the economic stratosphere, you have been created by God. And not only have you been created by God, but your richness and your poorness has also been dictated and determined by God. And basically what this proverb is saying is, 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 is a really simple point. That God is not only the source of all wealth, 
And I think last week we talked about Colossians 1, where God is the source of all things, including wealth. But God is also the distributor of all wealth. And I know that sounds a little unsettling because we think about those rich people who exploit the poor. We think about those people who take advantage of their wealth and they cause a lot of harm on society. And yet in God's sovereignty, I I don't understand why for every situation we aren't supposed to know because we're humans and we're his creation. But in every one of those situations, God determined in his sovereignty how much wealth each person gets. That's just part of his sovereignty. Not only is he the source of all wealth, but he is also the distributor of all wealth. And we see this throughout the Proverbs. We see this throughout Scripture. All the gold, all the silver are mine, is what God says. I'm the one who dispersed the way I choose to see fit. And we see this littered throughout Scripture, especially Proverbs 22. And when we think about that, God is the source of all wealth, He's a distributor of all wealth, then what are some of the implications of that is we need to fear Him. I mean, if He is the source and distributor of all wealth, then we need to depend on Him. We need to fear Him. We need to, we need to, we, we can't just think that we can determine our own success because all of this is from God's hand. And that's why the very next proverb says that. Uh, Proverbs 22, 4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Basically, what this proverb is saying is because God is a source of all wealth, He's a distributor of all wealth, we need to fear, we need to be humble before God because everything is His to begin with. And in a lot of ways, the two Proverbs I read in Proverbs 22. It's not rocket science, and it's not anything distinctly Christian. Uh, so I know for some of us, we're wondering, what is Christianity all about? What makes the gospel different? The, the, what I just said up until now is not very unique to Christianity. I think other worldviews, even non-religious worldviews, would understand that wealth is something that is beyond our capabilities in a lot of ways, And because of that, we should have some sense of humility. And Proverbs, they go on and they say uh, three other implications is we should take care of the poor. For those of us who are wealthy, because your wealth is not really from you yourself, in some ways you've just been very fortunate, the only appropriate response is to take care of the poor, to be generous. Another appropriate response is because wealth is something that's a precious commodity, and again, is not something that you yourself earn, but in some ways you are a fortunate recipient of it. You need to take good care of your money. Invest wisely. Don't squander it away. And the third implication is because we know that wealth is from God and he's a distributor of our wealth, it should reorient our desires. For most of our society, we're thinking money is the, the root of all happiness. And once you get money, you realize that money is the root of all evil and pain and suffering. And in a lot of ways, those things are kind of true. When we think about God being the source of all wealth and the distributor of all wealth, then the the three implications is we take care of the poor. We're generous to the poor. We take care of our wealth. We don't squander it away. And thirdly, we reorient our desires. Because we realize money can't really fulfill our desires. 
And I guess the fourth implication is, is we're humble. We fear the Lord. And like I mentioned, we see this not just in Christianity, but even in secular philanthropists as well. Like when we think about people like Warren Buffett, um, Bill and Melinda Gates, I know that they're about to go through a divorce, but nonetheless, like they've done a lot of good for humanity. Angelina Jolie, the Rockefellers are probably the most famous in, the, in, in history of people who are very generous with their wealth. And I don't know if all of them are Christian. I don't know what their religious beliefs are. But in a lot of ways, they recognize, they may not say God is a source and distributor of all wealth, but they will say fate is the source and distributor of all wealth. They would say, I happen to be born into this household. I could have been born into an oppressive society where I would have never experienced wealth. But people like Warren Buffett, Angelina Jolie, they would acknowledge it's by happenstance, by very good fortune, that I was born in this particular household with these genes, with these type of educational opportunities, with these type of social connections, and therefore I accumulated a massive, a, 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 an extraordinary amount of wealth. It's really fate or God or whatever that is allowing me to be the beneficiaries of this wealth that I could have never really earned on my own. I could have been born in this other country where I would have been oppressed. And therefore, because they have this sober awareness, they are very generous. They are just very lavish philanthropists. They are very careful with their money at the same time because they understand it's a precious commodity. It's not something that you can just waste through. And also, they desires are different. It's not just about accumulating more and more wealth. But for them, they recognize, you know what? I want to do something good for humanity in general. Um, so yeah, Proverbs 22 teaches us about wealth. Uh, God is a source, distributor of all, all wealth. And these are some implications. And I think for Christians and non-Christians alike, I think all of us can agree to these values and principles. And, and they're helpful. It's uh, just like the... One of the themes of the Proverbs is how to live a good, wise life. But like I also mentioned with the Proverbs, that's not really the ultimate meaning of the Proverbs. The Proverbs, they point to something deeper than that. We see this in Luke chapter 24 when Jesus says all of Scripture, including the book of Proverbs, they actually point to me. They actually are fulfilled by me. So we can't just look at wealth from the perspective of Proverbs 22, we also have to look at wealth in the perspective of all the scripture, really in light of Jesus and his gospel, from Genesis to Revelation. What does the gospel have to say about wealth? Uh, so let's move on. Um, I think we one of the best ways to start is the familiar story of Adam and Eve. And I, I know you're, you're wondering, Adam and Eve, the guy who, who ate the fruit, what do they have anything to do with wealth? But if you think about Adam and Eve and the way Genesis begins their story is they were also children of wealth. And they were supposed to inherit even more of God's blessings and wealth. But what happened? They squandered all of it away. And the reason why they squandered it away, I think, is very, very similar 
to the way we struggle in our relationship with God as well. Let's take a look at this. So we know back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, and they're working the garden. God is very generous to Adam and Eve. He told them, out of all the different trees, plants, fruit, everything, you can enjoy. And there are various kinds of fruits and trees. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, the way God created everything, it's very, very diverse. Lots of different vegetables, lots of different fruits. But there's only one fruit, only one fruit that I prohibit you from eating. And that is the uh, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But every other fruit, every other vegetable, every everything else, enjoy, have at it. It is like a, a, an eternal buffet. But just that one fruit, don't touch. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And notice what Satan says to the woman Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this is why I say, what is the core essence of sin? Is it really is a distortion of God's character and his involvement. Satan is distorting God's words. Satan is basically saying, Eve, did God actually say this? And what does Satan do? He actually quotes God saying, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. I mean, Satan basically inverts what God said. God said you can eat from every tree of the garden except one. But Satan says, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree of the garden? And all of a sudden, Eve is thinking. And she's having this conversation with the serpent. And we're not going to do a full sermon on Genesis 3. I, I wish we could. But they're going back and forth. And basically, Satan is planting doubts in Eve's heart through these questions that seem very innocent, saying, I think our God, this God of yours that you've been trusting, that you've been walking at the cool of the morning every single day, who's your maker? This God, I think he's withholding. I think he's shortchanging you. I think he's leaving some things on the table. I think he's leaving you hanging. And Eve, what does she do? She believes this, this serpent that comes out of nowhere who is crafty more than any other beast of the field, she places her trust in this serpent, who probably looks very suspicious, instead of her own maker, who again is the source and distributor of all love. And we all know the story. Adam and Eve, they both take the fruit. Adam and Eve, instead of trusting in God's word, they trust in the circumstances, they trust in their emotional impulses, and they take something it's just so like when you compare that one fruit compared to all the other fruits that God has given them it is just utter folly that they would have chosen to break their trust with God for that one fruit and this isn't just some allegorical fable that I'm sharing with all of us I think there are many parallels with us as well in our life God is very generous with us um God has given us his very own son. God has given us, even by societal standards, we are very blessed. The types of luxuries that we have, like even having air conditioning, just the simple things that we take for granted. God has blessed us enormously. And yet, what do we always covet? We always covet the thing that we have not yet obtained. We always, obtain, we always seek after and desire the things that are just outside of our grasp. 
whether it is that job promotion, whether it is that job, whether it's that relationship, whether it's that house, whether it's whatever it may be, fill in the blank. We are always seeking after that. And when we can't get that, we start hearing the whispers of Satan. Did God actually say that you can't have any enjoyment in life? When the reality is God has given us so much. And yes, maybe he is withholding that one thing for that period in time for his eternal purpose. And even as we sung about, he is sovereign over us. Even what the enemy means for evil, he's doing it for our good, whether we know it or not. Instead, we trust our impulses. And just like Adam and Eve, we can't just point our fingers at them. We do this all the time. We covet, we seek, and we desire that to the point where we even forsake and compromise our relationship with God. And really, the the tragic irony is, if you've ever been in a situation where you are grasping for something, and again, it could be that job promotion, it could be uh, a car or something, or a a device, once you get that, it's a matter of time, weeks, maybe months, maybe years, where that thing becomes old. That's not going to fulfill any one of us. And we're always seeking after the next thing that the carrot on the carrot stick, when all along God is so gracious and he wants to lavish upon us his blessings, his wealth. And what do we see later in Genesis chapter three? Um, So God drove out the man and the woman at the east and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, That becomes important, the tree of life, because although Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, there is still another tree, which is the tree of life that God wanted to protect. And he said, because of their disobedience, we're going to have to banish them from the garden. We have to protect the tree of life because that's what God was reserving for them. He wanted to give them more blessings. But because of their disobedience, they were barred from that. And what do we see? So the tree of life is a sacred thing that God prohibited Adam and Eve from also taking. And we fast forward all the way to Revelation. Remember, the Bible begins with Genesis, ends with Revelation. And when we see Revelation, the second to last chapter, and actually the last chapter of Revelation, we see the coherence of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation where it describes what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. And its description is very elaborate because it talks about all these different jewels, some of which I can't even pronounce right. These are very rare, precious jewels. And basically what Revelation is trying to show all of us is that we are destined heirs, children of opulent wealth that God is reserving for us. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like a transparent glass. I think you two may may have written a song about this on streets of gold, the very, very famous metaphor that even non-Christians will be familiar with. But basically the idea is that even something as precious as gold is so commonplace in the new heavens and the new earth that the roads are not made out of concrete and cement. They're just made out of gold because you don't even bat an eye because 
the most precious, the most expensive, the most exquisite jewelry are just so commonplace because this is the type of inheritance that God is reserving for those who are in Christ, for his own people. And we see this description of this opulence. And what do we see in the very last chapter? Is then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Notice just the, the, the extravagant language flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing for the nations. And basically what I'm trying to summarize for all of us is for Adam and Eve, they were, their trajectory were to be recipients, beneficiaries of God's wealth. Instead, they squandered their relationship with God, their trust in God. They didn't fear the Lord. They didn't. They weren't humble before God. All for this one fruit, even though they could have enjoyed all the other fruit. But this, Revelation 21 and 22, is a preview of what they were supposed to inherit. Inherit a place where the streets were made out of gold. Inherit a place where they could enjoy the tree of life. We see the tree of life in Genesis 3, and we see it ending in, Je in Revelation 22 as well. And Adam and Eve, they did not understand who they really were. They did not understand their true identity in God. That they were children of wealth. Why are they coveting these, this one random fruit when God has already blessed them abundantly and lavishly? Um, and again, the reason why I'm going through so much details about Adam and Eve is not because I'm bitter at Adam and Eve or for us to just point our finger at Adam and Eve. But like I mentioned with the Old Testament in Israel, they are a spiritual mirror to us. Uh, they portray, they show a window into what our heart is like. And yes, sin can be something very action-oriented. But sin can also be something very internal. The way we covet after certain things and the way we don't trust that God will provide for us, that his wealth, his provision is not sufficient for us. Just like Adam and Eve. They listened to some crafty, suspicious, random serpent that just came out of nowhere. They're placing their trust in that instead of their actual maker with whom they've been walking every single day having a relationship with similarly for us we trust in the vicissitudes of life just a bad break a bad circumstances one email that we get from our boss or whatever one little thing and all of a sudden we are so shaken to the core and because of that our faith it just falls like a house of cars and we think what well, did god actually really say that maybe i need to put things into my own hands when our maker our creator who's been so patiently and lovingly walking with us, sending his one and only son to die for us, we disregard his word, his character. Like that book said, I think is just so true, is, is it's not a light sin. It, we assassinate God's character and we impugn his motives. If you ever felt like your character has been assassinated and your motives have been impugned, 
especially when you've been genuinely good for somebody, that is not a light offense. That's very egregious. And that's what we do. That is what our sin does to God. Now, thankfully, the message obviously doesn't end there. Because although that is the trajectory of Adam and Eve, our identity is no longer wrapped up in Adam and Eve. Praise God. But God has rescued us. Instead of following the footsteps of Adam, we get to follow the footsteps of whom? The second Adam, which is Jesus. We have now been liberated from the type of sin that Adam and Eve were enslaved by. And now we have been freed from that. And our identity is now in Christ. And like um, we've been mentioning, submitting to and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing that we woefully fall short of God's glory and His standard because of our sin, but that He, God, out of His loving kindness, sent His one and only Son to die and pay for all of our sin. And He resurrected so His Spirit is alive in us, conforming us to become more like Jesus. So our identity is now in Christ. That gospel, if we believe in that, if we submit to that, then that means that we are now heirs of God's wealth, of infinite wealth, of His infinite blessing. And we see Paul talking about this in Philippians chapter 4. And if you want to know the context of Philippians, Paul is writing this while he's in prison. While he is, from an economic standpoint, from a financial standpoint, this is probably the lowest of the lows. And yet he writes, And my God, He will supply every need of yours. He will. It's not He might. It's not if you pray hard enough. It's not if you do enough quiet times or if you've tithed enough or if you've gone to church long enough. He says, He will unequivocally, undoubtedly, supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I mean, notice. He's not going to supply every need of yours according to what's necessary. It's not like God just supplies for you. You need a car? Okay, let me get that used car around the corner. And, you know, you might have to um, just recharge the battery every, like, every, like, I don't know, five minutes of driving. Like, it's not like this car that doesn't have air conditioning and, like, the the Fred Flintstone car where you have to just, like, manually get it to run. No, God will provide for you according to his riches, It is God doesn't just give you the bare bones, just the minimum requirements. What Paul is saying while he's in prison, saying our God, we are heirs of wealth. And this God who loves his children, who is the perfect, generous father, he will undoubtedly supply according, not according to what's necessary, but according to his riches. And probably the most important thing about this verse is, I think some of us are tracking in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ. We are united with Jesus. He lives in us. We live in Him. And therefore, we are literally heirs of God. We are children of God. And because of that, just like any loving parent, and we're talking about the ideal parent, there is no way that a parent is going to let his or her child hang. Especially when he is perfectly loving and perfectly capable because he is the source and distributor of all wealth. So Paul is saying, 
God, for those of us who believe and submit to Christ in, in the gospel of Jesus, you have no longer. You don't have to covet that, that fruit. You don't have to listen to that random crafty serpent that just popped out of nowhere. You don't have to place so much of your hope and your joy in these circumstances that after a few months, you're not even going to think about. We have something so much more infinite, so much more joyous. Our God is the source and distributor of our love. And He also happens to be our loving Father. All because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, the thing that I want to mention is Paul doesn't just say God will undoubtedly supply every need of yours. Later in Romans chapter 8, Paul says something interesting. Because if we just focus on Philippians 4.19, I think for some of us, we might, get a little, we might distort God's character in another way. We see examples of this in you know, prosperity gospel movements where you name it and you can claim it. Like you name a need that you have and you can claim it because you are in Christ and God will supply every need according to his riches. That's, that's a distortion. You're not reading the Bible carefully. You're just cherry-picking your favorite verses and you're ignoring some of the tougher verses that are equally important. This is not a prosperity gospel where God promises financial prosperity because we see in Romans 8, and if children then heirs, and, and basically what Paul is saying is we have all been adopted. We're not just saved by Jesus, but we've been adopted. We're children of God. And not only children, but we are heirs. We get to inherit something. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him. You know, the word provided is, is very, very interesting. It's if only we suffer with Him. It, it's it's a condition. It's not we are beneficiaries of God's opulent wealth, case closed, and we get to just enjoy a prosperity gospel, but under the condition that we also suffer with Jesus in order that we may also be glorified with Jesus. Paul is saying, yes, Paul's the one who said that God is going to supply our every need according to his riches, according to his opulent wealth. And we talked about Titus chapter 3 a few months later where it's, the language is very extravagant. But Paul also understands that this wealth is not just something that we just enjoy, but it also comes with suffering. And it makes sense. I mean, if you really think about it, I know for some of us we're thinking, wait, wealth and prosperity, but suffering, how do they go hand in hand? I don't understand. If I am God's child, why would he want me to suffer? I understand if I'm God's child, he wants me to be blessed and to enjoy all these great things, but why would he want me to suffer? And two things make this not that difficult to understand. But I think our emotions sometimes take, make the, get the best of us. The first is, like I mentioned earlier, if we are becoming more like Christ, then we will bear his attributes. It's just simple. What are some of his attributes? He was very loving. And when we're, whenever we think about, I want to be more like Christ, we think about, oh, we need to be more loving. We need to be more patient. We need to be more wise. And those things are true. I, I don't want to downplay those things. But hardly does anybody say, I, I want to be more like Christ. Why? Because I want to suffer. Well, guess what? Christ was a man of sorrows. He wasn't just a man of love. 
He wasn't just the God of patience. He wasn't just the God of gentleness and of wisdom. He was also a man who suffered. And if he is the one that we are being conformed to, then suffering goes along with it. Um, Jesus says it best himself in the Gospel of John. He says, a servant is no greater than his master. If you want to follow me, why do you think that your life can be better than the life of the master? If Jesus had to bear a cross, then we as his followers, we must also bear our cross as well. Uh, another way of looking at this that I think is, is pretty easy to understand, um, and especially if you're a parent or if, you're, if you've ever been a babysitter or a nanny, and you see a child, <laughs> and a child, you know, like I love children, I think they're so cute, but they're so spoiled. <laughs> Their perspective on life is very childlike, but it's also very childish, right? Um, they need to be disciplined. They need to suffer in some ways in order for them to mature, in order for them to be at a place where when they do inherit wealth, that they don't squander it away. If I've never disciplined my children, and if one day Jeannie and I pass away and they inherit whatever, they are going to squander that thing away. And that's why even in secular wills, they have a guarantor until they are of age. And it's not of age just because you're a particular age, you're going to be mature. It's, it's really, if you lived a life of discipline, if you suffered, if you've experienced the difficulties of life, and you've been able to cope with that properly, that will give you a perspective and a level of maturity where you can handle things like an enormous inheritance. And for many of us, uh, I truly believe that, yes, we are children of wealth. Uh, we can't deny that. And I feel like sometimes we think Let me provide my thoughts about that in a bit. Let me first read the next verse. And that's why, because Paul recognizes that wealth and suffering, inheritance and suffering, they go hand in hand, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He said, yes, I mean, Paul suffered a lot. He was in prison when he wrote Philippians, like I mentioned. He's been flogged. He's been betrayed, deserted, uh, relationally, like anything, physically, emotionally, maybe even psychologically because he didn't see the fruit in some of his church plants. Some of the church plants that he saw that started off well, then they veered off to the left. When we think about Galatians, when we think about the church in Corinth, Paul suffered greatly is the point. And he says, although I suffered, man, this doesn't compare to the glorious riches that await us. And therefore, he's, he a, is able to write things like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, be thankful in all situations. And he's probably thinking, maybe not consciously, he's probably thinking of Adam and Eve. Did you not know the glorious riches that awaited you? And yet, you couldn't endure that one temptation. You trusted that just random serpent that just came out of nowhere and you just ate that one fruit. When all of this was for you. And Paul's thinking to himself and Paul's saying to us as well. 
why do we take so much of our stock in these present sufferings? They are sufferings. I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to, as us to be robotic and act like stoics and pretend like they don't. They hurt. There's a lot of evil in this world. But why do we act like there's not this enormous wealth, blessing, prosperity that await us that far exceeds even the worst sufferings that we're experiencing today? You know, when I think about this message with Uptown, it's not, okay, therefore you need to tithe more. Therefore, those things are so secondary, tertiary. They're, they're just so peripheral. That's not the main point. The main point is, do you know who you are in Christ? Like, do you know what our reality is now that we are in Christ? We are heirs of wealth. I know many times we try to downplay that, and it's because we experience suffering. I think as little children growing up, we used to believe all the Sunday school lessons. Oh God, we are God's children, and God is rich, and therefore I am rich. Yes, I am so blessed. And, and there's that blissful, innocent, youthful joy. And we go on in life and we recognize, wait a minute. If, if, I'm, if I'm a child of wealth, but my, my parents divorced because of financial problems. Oh, wait a minute. I'm having a hard time paying rent. I've been unemployed for a year. Maybe I'm not a child of wealth. Maybe God isn't a loving, generous, providing father. And it's very similar to what Satan does. Is Did God really say this? And we doubt. And it's because we experience sufferings that that makes us undermine the truth that God has given. We are heirs of wealth. That's something that we should hold dearly to. Every single one of us, stop coveting after this rat race. You are an heir of wealth. An enormous, glorious inheritance awaits you. Place your eyes on that. Let that orient and dictate the way you live your life. But on the other side of the extreme is when we experience suffering, we think, oh my goodness, God is distant. Like Maybe God doesn't care about me. Maybe I'm not in Christ. Maybe I haven't believed hard enough. Or maybe it's because I haven't gone to... If you are in Christ, you are not only an heir of wealth, that's undoubted, but you're also an heir of suffering. The suffering that you experience, God is using it for your good, for His glory. What the enemy meant for evil, we see this later in that same chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And 29, God is using all things, the suffering and the good times, to make you more like Jesus. And on the other hand, for some of us who are experiencing wealth and prosperity and success, we think that when we do experience suffering, we get so surprised. We, we get so shaken. That is part of our identity. Our master suffered. We must also suffer. Our master is the source of all wealth. We will be recipients of that wealth. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. Um, you know, as we close, uh, I just want to give us an opportunity to just uh, allow the Spirit to speak to us because uh, I know um, there's, there's a lot that was said here. 
And a lot of it is the the way that the message was is it was oriented towards what I sense that many of us are struggling with. Um, I, I do believe that we are in that moment where Eve was, where we're sharing these competing voices, and we don't really know what to make of it. And everything's so subtle, the way Satan phrases certain things, the way our emotions phrase certain things is so subtle. But I really want to give us an opportunity to stop, to shut out all those voices and to allow the Spirit to just speak truth into us. So I'm, I'm going to give us maybe a quiet moment. Uh, let's just reflect. And if there's anything that the Spirit is placing on your heart, please jot it down. Um, after a moment, I'm going to ask our brother Terry if we can sing um, The Sovereign, He is Sovereign Over Us. I think that that, that song captures really well um, what the Spirit is trying to speak to us. So you can either join in on that song or you can just allow that song to just facilitate your moment with the Spirit. So let's just all take a moment in, um, with God.